Lord be with you. And also lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. We gather in worship in three dimensions around the globe via internet at wbur.org. Here in New England, by National Public Radio, 90.9 FM, and along the shimmering banks of the River Charles here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, Marsh Chapel. Today, we offer thanks for the doxological leadership of our musicians, our choristers and instrumentalists in this, our last cantata of the school year, and especially to our director of music, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
pray. O God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, open the eyes of our faith that we may behold him in all his redeeming work, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, when we witness harm done, we are angry and shocked, saddened and frightened. How could we be anything but? We ask, what is wrong with people? And we confess that we do not understand, that we have not yet spread preventive healing to all madness, that to our peril we forget just how fragile, just how pre precious life is. We remember in worship that worship invites compunction, worship inspires confession, worship invokes contrition, worship, in, worship induces lament, and worship reminds us that in one sense regret is the beginning of consciousness. As the choir sings the Kyrie, we invite you silently, prayerfully, to offer your words of confession. Let us pray. Eastertide is a season of promise. This is a day of new beginnings, time to remember and move on, time to acknowledge what love is bringing, laying to rest the grief that is gone. Hear the good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks, Thanks be to God. A lesson from the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. 
Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in the praying of our psalm with the antiphon. O God of my right, you gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. But know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Oh, that we might see some good, let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and wine abound. Please now rise for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of our gospel.
Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 48. Glory to you, O Lord. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Jesus, the risen crucified, appears through the end of Luke in several remarkable ways. The gospel renderings of his absence in presence, his presence in absence, are highly mythological. Many of these appear just prior to this morning's lesson, taking place along the road, you will remember, to Emmaus. The one who knows them, they do not know. The one whose story of passion and resurrection they relate is himself the story's lone hearer, the story's singular audience. The one who interprets scripture as his own narrative and who offers bread and blessing is himself misinterpreted. He goes unrecognized. And then, in the very moment of recognition's incursion, he vanishes, slipping past them all in afterglow. From the outset, Jesus has made himself known indirectly in preaching. Did our hearts not burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? In that sentence, you have the church's 2,000-year-long confession of faith. Then, abruptly, to complete the Gospel of Luke, we have today's reading, today's lesson, today's jarring edition. We are suddenly in a different world of language and imagery. Gone are the mystical, the mystagogical presence in absence and absence in presence. We have moved from myth to legend. We have moved from theology to folklore. It is as if Shakespeare were supplanted by Hans Christian Andersen. The verses are plain and dramatic. The disciples panic. They see a ghost, he stands among them. He shows feet and hands, he shows flesh and bone. The invisible, 
is now seen. The mystery is unveiled. He eats broiled fish. One continuous constant remains, though. He makes himself known in preaching. What shall we make of this abrupt, jarring, concluding addition to the end of the Gospel of Luke? What shall we make of the descent from Emmaus sublime to broiled fish? Just this. The preaching of Christ, be there no mistake, is for the good, the existential good, the living good of hombres de carne y hueso, as Miguel de Unamuno, the great Spanish existentialist, had it. Christ is good news, good news, good news for flesh and bone. Christ, the risen crucified, is good news for human beings, actual, living, breathing, unfeathered bipeds. Christ is good news for you. To know Christ, said Melanchthon, is to know his benefits. His season is ever a season of promise for you. For this reason, Dan Barry's magisterial account in a recent newspaper article of salvation through music concludes in jarring abruptness today's Bach Cantata Sunday sermon. Perhaps you read his article a couple of weeks ago. I read it from the front page of the daily paper, surprised by joy. Such a joy, such a quotidian morning pause and peace, a coffee, a quiet, amusing, an unexpected, ungoogled, unhunted, unforeseen story leaping from paper and newsprint, leaping from hand, from the handheld messenger, the daily paper delivered by grace to the door. I know you know the pleasure. It is an experience of really, really being alive. This is a story, his, of salvation through music. A dear friend commented on Easter service, the closest I have ever come to any epiphany of any sort is in the hearing of the music in your church. I, 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 I really don't know how to explain it. Good, I replied. Dan Barry wrote this. Two days before their long-awaited trip to New York City, for many of them a foreign place, the members of the Newark, Ohio High School Sinfonia noisily gather for rehearsal. The cacophony ends when the first of the violinists, the best violinist, stands to lead others in the tuning of an A. Her name is Tiffany Clay. She is 18, with light brown hair tied in a ponytail and large eyes that always seem at the edge of tears. She has been on her own, more or less, since she was 16, and the violin in her delicate hands was bought for $175 on eBay by her music teacher. She is a complicated young woman, says that teacher, and a gifted musician. Consistently at or near the very top of her class, she should be going to a top college on scholarship, but won't be because she feels a need to make money more than music. Ms. Clay is a child of her age and place, worried about being laid off, uninterested in and maybe even afraid of imagining a life beyond central Ohio. Newark is what she knows, a pleasant bifurcated city of 45,000 
where concerns about unemployment temper the pride in local public art, and where affluence and poverty sit side by side in the classroom. She once explored the idea of going away to college to become a music teacher, but it just didn't seem practical. Spending four years studying the theory of music doesn't interest her. While here in Newark, the school system is constantly adapting to real and threatened cuts. Music programs always seem among the first to go, she says. No job security in Tchaikovsky. She is maintaining high grades, playing in the orchestra, working 35 hours a week as a sonic drive-in car hop, paying $345 a month for a small apartment she shares with an unemployed boyfriend, and planning to study nursing for two years at a technical college in Newark. Everybody gets sick, she says, plotting her future. Right now, though, she and other students are rehearsing their string instruments for a high school orchestra competition that will take place in Lincoln Center. Soon the chatter of teenagers in a mostly empty school auditorium surrenders to the music of the masters. Listen, says her teacher, Susan Larson. Her baton paused in mid-sway. Listen. Here in Newark, half the students are poor enough to receive lunch free or at a discount. The system also has one of the highest dropout rates in Ohio. Nearly a third of the high school students do not graduate. That elevated percentage seems out of place given the middle America setting, but officials have a theory. Back in the day, you could drop out and still get a good job at one of the man many manufacturing plants in town. Now those jobs have gone away, says Keith Richards, the city's school superintendent, but the mindset has not. Re rehearsal ends and the young musicians flee, a few in cars driven by parents. Ms. Clay, though, drives her 1998 Chevy Malibu to wash clothes for her New York trip at the Colonial Coin Laundry, then heads to her home in a weathered apartment complex, the unit, she says, right next to the dumpster. The apartment contains little more than bed, television, and couch, now occupied by her boyfriend, Trevor Scanlon, who dropped out of high school but says he's working on his graduate equivalency diploma. Slinking about is their cat, Easy Mac, named after a macaroni and cheese dish that you microwave. The short life story Ms. Clay tells is of an adulthood come too soon, of parents splitting up when she was young, of a mother gone to another city, of a father and electrician dogged by unemployment uncertainties. She and her father clashed so often, she says, that she moved out at age 16, got a job, and tried to figure out life, rent, work, school, health issues on her own. She returned after a year, but left again after several months for good, though she is in touch with her parents and talks often of wanting to be around in case they ever need her. While working full-time at the Sonic, she has also maintained superior grades, taken several advanced placement courses, and distanced herself from her classmates. She bristles when some of them talk about what they've spent at the East Town Center Mall. That's a month's rent, she wants to say but at the same time she admits to feeling jealous 
I want that too. Now wearing a yellow Sonic golf shirt and a Tiffany C nameplate, Ms. Clay leaves to make $7.35 an hour plus tips. Soon she is gliding on roller skates beneath neon reds and yellows that grow more garish as dusk descends, spinning, speeding, stopping with effortless grace she balances plastic trays of sweet and greasy food with those delicate hands. Her mastery of yet another world, this sonic world, means she is again employee of the month, entitling her to a month of free meals. And the lyrics of her night song are, all right, I've got you your three junior chili cheese wraps, a BLT, chicken strip sandwich, extra long coney, and a mozzarella stick, and a kid's hot dog meal and a kid's hamburger meal, one with grape slush, the other with powderade slush. Two mornings later, buses whisk the Newark High School Sinfonia and its entourage to New York City. Now it is Sunday. They have spent three days in a Manhattan wonderland but the time has come to compete for something called the National Orchestra Cup. They file into the just-renovated Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center and put on their school-owned tuxedos and gowns. Newark is the last to perform, following a symphony orchestra with strings, brass, winds, percussion, and a harp from Carmel, Indiana, where the median income is nearly three times that of Newark. The Carmel students seem at home in Lincoln Center. They play exquisitely. The, New York, the Newark students take the stage, led by concertmaster Tiffany Clay and trailed by director Susan Larson. First a toccata by Frescobaldi, then a cello duet by Vivaldi sweetly rendered. Finally, the first movement of Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings. Soon there come sounds just beyond articulation of sorrow, joy, and wonder summoned from wood and string by the children of Newark, Ohio. And Ms. Clay, at the front of the stage, disappears into the music. Enchanted by Paco Bell as a child, given free lessons by a teacher who recognized her talent, blessed with the gift of music, musical sight reading, Ms. Clay has not been as fortunate with other parts of her young life. Her worries are not about prom dresses, but about family and rent and employment. Soon these students will be back in Newark, Ohio, proud of tying for runner-up behind that orchestra from Carmel. And Miss Clay will be back at the Sonic, spinning her wheels, singing her songs of limeades and cheeseburgers, easy on the mayo. After that, nursing, probably. What role music will play in her life? she does not know, but for now at least, she is on the New York stage 
wearing a borrowed black gown, playing a borrowed eBay violin, and Tchaikovsky holds her.
We would like to thank this morning Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett, the Marsh Chapel Choir, and the Collegium for their gift of music to us.
and Dr. Jarrett has an announcement for us. Oh, okay, that quickly. Good morning and welcome to Mars Chapel. And it's nice to see the group in the back. I'm not sure where you're from, but welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, my announcement is about the final concert of our series, Music at Marsh Chapel concert series, which occurs this Saturday night, May 2nd. The time is 7.30 in this room. General admission is $10. It's free if you have any student ID, young, old, far away. Any student ID will work. It's fine. We want you to be here and share wonderful music. The program uh, features, of course, a little bit of Bach, uh, a cantata 118B, a little single movement Bach. Tim Westerhouse, our assistant conductor, is playing Bach's D major keyboard concerto, BWV 1054. And then uh, all throughout this year, and even this morning, the Curie and then the Offertory Anthem are by Felix Mendelssohn. And we celebrate the 200th anniversary of Mendelssohn's birth this year. And so that program will feature a collection of the a cappella works which we've been performing throughout, these, uh, throughout the liturgies in this season. Uh, in the front part of the program. And then we end the program with Benjamin Britten's Cantata Misericordium, written for the centennial celebrations of the uh, Red Cross and the Red Crescent. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Marvelous uh, piece for a chorus, orchestra, and two soloists featuring Stephen Reed and Joshua Taylor. Please come. The tickets are available downstairs, and they look like this. And you can see a choir member or go downstairs. We'll be very happy to provide you with one. See you Saturday. There are many things going on in our community, and I invite you to look at your bulletin and also the website for that information. Also, uh, Thursday is the last day of classes, the last day of our semester, and the chapel office will be open as normal through this week. We'd also like to help you get to know each other and help us get to know you, so I'd encourage you to take those red pads at the end of each pew and pass them along, and as you do so, take a look at the names of the people who you are worshiping with and maybe be able to greet them by name after our service. Also, I'd encourage you to come down for coffee and conversation after the service. And finally, we would also love to hear from our radio and internet listeners, and our contact information is at the Marsh Chapel website. There's also the opportunity there for online giving. Now, walk in love as Christ has loved us. No.
God, you give us refreshing days. We give you these gifts and thanks and ask that they be used to further the work of your kingdom here on earth. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>